Hello and welcome to the Women's Agenda podcast. My name is Angela Priestley. Today I have another special guest on the podcast. Nabi Mariam is a serial entrepreneur and the founder of Cover Hero. As you'll hear in this conversation, Nabi has a lot of great advice to share on everything from burnout to peaking early in your career and creating entire new careers out of entrepreneurship. She also shares her journey to where she is now, starting university at 15, arriving in Australia in her 20s with a new baby in tow, and she has some excellent advice on how to succeed in the future of work, particularly why creativity is so important. Thank you for listening. you at at the moment have things slowed down for you or is it still like that is that just the life of an entrepreneur I think it never slows down ever uh, because there's always things to do you're always trying to do a lot more uh, trying to move faster trying to hit the milestones so it hasn't slowed down but also one of the things that's happened is I have been and, and my team and I we've been uh, focused on how do we get through this uncertain time period, changing strategy and and constantly pushing and 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 moving forward. And what what has happened, what I didn't realize was I was I was under a lot of stress and extreme pressure, trying to hit milestones and also putting out fires at the same time that I was experiencing burnout and not truly realizing the signs, and I talk about this very openly, it's just very hard to recognize when you're in it. Mm. And I have built mechanisms around around me and read a lot about how do you recognize burnout? What are, what are some of the signs of burnout? And to take a break. Um, generally, what happens is entrepreneurs work so long without taking a break. Mm. And when the burnout kicks in, there are multiple stages of burnout and later stages of burnout, you just lose any kind of inspiration. Mm. And then you go down this path of depression. Mm. Um, but in the early stages, the signs are around, I don't feel motivated. I, I, I don't have the drive. Um, and then you get really self-critical because uh, you think to yourself, oh my gosh, I should be working. Why am I not inspired to work? Like, and then you kind of give up and then there's this like knock on effect. So I recognized this this week and I was talking to one of my teammates and I said, dude, I just, I just don't feel anything. It was like, are you sad? I said, no. I said, I just don't feel anything. I want to get into my creative flow and I just can't access it. And he was like, I think you're experiencing burnout. I'm like, oh my God, that might be true. Mm. So I told my team I'm taking two days off to recharge because when you are the founder slash CEO, leading and leadership is is a is is a lot of hard work. Yeah. Uh, and some days I wake up and I I, I wish oh, I wish I had a boss who would tell me just do this and don't think yeah. about it. Yeah, I think it's the mental burden and the mental fatigue that leads to to the burnout, and especially in the in in knowledge work. Yeah, and you know, especially this year as well, because that sense of being the leader and you've had to guide and pivot a team through this period 
Whether your your business is um, you know significantly hit by COVID, I mean, obviously running a hospitality business or something that is directly front facing can be quite different. But you know, for the for, for all other businesses, we've all had to adapt and make changes and make sure that we're looking after staff and you know guide things, set new policies, and just keep charging through all this. Exactly, it is a it is a really different year, and I was talking about. Uh, the aftermath of pandemic, which is when when we start experiencing uh, the later stages of grief and and the loss of our lifestyle and having to adapt, having to change, having to function with extreme uncertainty, and that can take a toll on our livelihoods. And and realizing that and being compassionate is the way we're going to heal from this massive change. Mm. Mm, that's so important being and I, I think you're talking self-compassion there I mean obviously yeah, compassion yeah. for you this your staff and your people around you but self-compassion is that how do you what do you do there how do you practice that so there are little things that I do um my routine is very important for me uh the time that I go to bed the time that I wake up I wake up really early I meditate every morning I start the day very slowly, very intentionally. I have breakfast with my son before he goes to school and and then I start the day at nine and then I try and finish the day uh, around five or six and then get changed to, okay. because I'm still working from home. So having that routine and then cook dinner. So it's changing uh, the, the, the tasks that I do and keeping those practices there. And if I don't hit a deadline or if I put too much on my plate, recognizing that what is humanly capable and what is not capable and and taking things off the plate and mm. communicating and asking for help. I think these are ways that you could um, practice self-compassion and not having negative self-talk around you're not doing enough you need to do more and 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 these are the kind of things that that comes up uh, especially for people that are that are driven and I often have this feeling that I'm not working hard enough mm. Mm. and it comes up and and I need to I need to be smarter I need to work harder and those uh that kind of dialogue and narrative is not helpful because it is not true because as if you look at the facts of actual output and how you're moving the needle, it's a good way to get out of your head and look at what is actually happening. So meditation has been incredibly helpful in identifying reality versus the stories in our head about ourselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm sorry, I'm going a little bit too far into the details here and I want to get a little bit more to your entrepreneurial story. But first, I do want to ask about meditation is it something that you've always done is it something that you went to somebody to learn did a course in or how have you developed that that practice uh about three years ago um I, I used to hate meditation. I thought that was the most useless thing. Yeah, so I'm at that stage. Rough. I'm at that stage and so that's why. And I think a lot of people are. But, you know, obviously there seems to be so many benefits and so many people talk about all the, you know, really impressive people particularly talk about the benefits. So how did you snap out yeah. of that stage? Mm. So I was, I was training to become an NLP master practitioner 
and, and because I'm an academic and social scientist and social psychologist, my background meditation is is Eastern philosophy and very much around the same principles in psychology, but in kind of like a different way. So for me to believe in something, there has to be scientific evidence. Otherwise, my brain's like, that's just hippie talk. Uh, mm. I don't buy into it. So when I was doing my NLP practitioner, there was a lot of things that, that I learned and techniques. And then I was coaching. I was in executive coaching. And then more so for myself and, and practicing uh, looking at my, my value structures, my internal programming. And, and, and these concepts are there in psychology as well about, you know, your identity theory, your, your childhood trauma, how it manifests and, and how we behave as a result of that. Mm. What meditation does is allow you to see that what you feel, what you see, your thoughts are actually not you and therefore you don't have to become those. And we have very little control over what we experience and the thoughts come and go. It's like a, a computer program that was written and you're just living out that program. Mm. And in 2018, I was bootstrapping Cover Hero and I went through a really difficult time um, of depression and an episode that lasted about three to four months. And mm. and was um, I was having suicidal thoughts and I was mm. kind of going down this path of finding no meaning or joy in life. And it doesn't happen in a day. It happens incrementally and and a lot of the, the key pillars of your life start falling. And I was feeling very lonely and it was kind of this downward spiral. Mm. And yeah. I recognized that I'm kind of in the danger zone because I just got no joy out of out of life. And I asked for help. I asked for I I told my best friend that this is what I'm experiencing, that I, I need help, I need support. So I moved in with my best friend and I went on to this path of recovering from from that stage that I was in. And that's how I started meditating. And I had a life coach, one of my friends who was an NLP uh, master practitioner, and I was working with him. And then I went and saw a nutritionist mm. and everything was about calming myself, mm. um, having stillness and, and having structure and having routine. And I started building these micro habits every day, very diligently. And in 12 months, my life had radically changed. Mm. Um, I, and I felt like I've become this whole new person, not because suddenly I'm all Zen, uh, the, the difference that made the difference was the feelings and the thoughts that are outside of our control will come to the surface. But what it allowed me to do is not attach to it and let it go and let it pass. Mm. So the emotion regulation and, and working under stress or dealing with rejection, all of these things become easier to do than before. So mm. it gives you tools and freedom to, to choose the response that you want to things that are outside of our control. And that is the true benefit that wow. I have got over two years of, of yeah. diligently meditating yeah. and integrating as part of my life. And that's made me very calm, very objective. I make better judgment, good decisions. The relationships in my life has improved 
radically with family, friends, my my colleagues, everyone. You just see the world from a very different perspective. Mm. Wow. Thank you for sharing that, particularly noting the place where you are now and also what you were experiencing back then. It's just, it's really important that um, I know that uh, that, that we, we do see a lot of depression among entrepreneurs and it's really important to know that you can reach out for help and we'll make sure that we share some details of some places that people can go for help at the end of this episode. Um, can I ask about, so you mentioned bootstrapping then. So let, let, let's get to your entrepreneurial journey. You, you've done a lot of different things. Was there a point that you decided to be? Um, I, I think there was a turning point. Uh, in my career. So I was an academic for over a decade. And I, I peaked very early in my career. And I've always done things that I've never done before. I like big challenges. Mm. And that's kind of part DNA. Um, and my upbringing as well, I was I'm also very competitive, whatever I do, I have to be the best at what I do. And I work extremely hard, and I really push myself. So I was in academia, I was in a very senior position, and I thought, what, where, where to from here? And I was only 27 at the time, mm. and I had peaked in my career, and I thought, in this system of the corporate world, for me to have real freedom to do things that I want to do, and I don't agree with a lot of the bureaucracy and, and the way things are done, there was no freedom for me to, to do it because academia is a heavily regulated space. It's very old school. And I thought, I'm not going to be able to make an impact in the world to the extent that I want to. So, But I had no courage to take that leap from having my corporate job to giving it all up and going out into the world alone, trying to build a business. I didn't know where to get started. And I, I, I left academia. Um, I think I was 30 at the time and, uh, I wanted to do a documentary series because I wanted to, that's just one of my, my big passions mm. and, uh, produced one. And I was trying to sell to SBS and, and they weren't going to buy it. They said, you know, you don't have a commercial face. Mm. And I was, I was really disappointed <laughs> and I was like, who cares about my face? This is, this is an important topic as well produced. It's about climate change and, mm. and bringing the attention to small island destinations. Mm. And it was kind of a cross between Anthony Bourdain and, and style kind of travel, but with uh, climate, climate action. Um, so that was kind of like what I did. And then when they didn't work out, I decided that technology was the next thing to do and um, not having a tech background. I started off by just going to meetups and connecting with people. And we launched Australia's first uh, rideshare platform for kids called Ride Hero in 2015 yeah. uh, with my co-founder, Yacinth. Um So that was kind of how it started. And I learned a lot and I read a lot. Mm. And I surround myself with people that have done it before. So I hustled a lot and... Um, and then I shut that down and had took a little break, went to London, came back and had a very traumatic life experience, um, which was related to insurance that led me to, to, to dive 
into the world of insurance and, and build something that we believe is going to be truly valuable, will protect the future of work um, and the lifestyle changes that, that is happening mm-hmm. in the world and create financial security. Because financial security is very closely related to your your mental well-being and your physical well-being. Mm-hmm. And a lot of entrepreneurs don't think about those things. And if you're self-employed, we don't think that something bad is going to happen because of, I call it a delusional optimism. Mm-hmm. And there is a downside to delusional optimism. So it's, it's bringing it it's kind of to the center and, and no where your baseline is and not compromising the baseline. Mm, okay. I have a lot of questions out of all this because we discovered a lot yeah. then, but um, delusional optimism. Wow, that's a good term. I'm going to look into that a little bit more. But um, I think also it's important, um, particularly for women, we know that women don't retire with anything like the savings of men. And we know from our audience that um, many um, if not most, live, you know, uh, uh, there's a significant portion living kind of paycheck to paycheck and and just scraping by with that. So obviously, you know, the slightest change in your circumstances and a lot of people have experienced that this year, not necessarily to injury or something else, but um, purely just the impacts of COVID. But um, a slight change can make a significant difference. So I think this business is, is so important. Um, I just wanted to take you step back a step. I mean, the documentary sounds cool. Um, they were um, stupid not to look at that, but did you ever think about doing that again or have, did, have you seen anything like that? I mean, I haven't seen anything like that. I think that would be awesome to watch, but do you think yeah, there'll be an opportunity if, if again? A, mm. If there is somebody that wants to pick it up and do it, I'd definitely do it. <laughs> Let's do it. it. It's just story of my life and my childhood yeah. and the story of the Maldives isn't, um, told in its true form. It's all about beautiful water bungalows and yeah. celebrity holidays, which is not true um, for for the people of the Maldives. It's, it's a very rich culture, very beautiful culture, very unique and very small of only 300,000 people. And I wanted to tell that story. I wanted to tell the story about the people of the Maldives, the history, the food, the 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 rituals of of the Maldivians and and you won't meet a lot of Maldivians because there are only three hundred thousand Maldivians mm-hmm. and and massive threat from climate change and it could disappear. I mean, in a hundred years' time, it might not even be there. In the, like in the last few years, do you, are you seeing the direct impacts already? There's there's impact uh, of of tourism. I was um, I was working for United Nations Development Project as a consultant in 2018. Mm. Um, I was designing a uh, a technology based accelerator program for the country. It was the first of its kind. The idea was heavier reliance on tourism um, is not going to be sustainable. We need to look at other avenues and to drive innovation and entrepreneurship in the Maldives because. Tourism is built on a very fragile ecosystem, and if it gets overused, it destroys, mm. you know, the corals. It destroys the the ecosystem, which is not going to be good. So there is this man-made impact and diversifying that is going to be really important. I think, you know, the impact of climate change and and what happens is not you you won't see it in a day incrementally. 
it would get bad. Mm. And over time, certain islands are going to be unlivable. Um, and in 2004, I think, what was the 2005 tsunami mm. was kind of like the biggest crisis that we had. And I was living in the Maldives at the time. Mm. Um, and I lost my, my birth island as a result of it. It was unlivable. And people were moved from the island to another island. So um, for me, it's like I I, I lost my home. Um, mm. And that was pretty devastating to, to go back to the island. To the I was born in this house and to see that it, it's gone mm. and there's nobody living there. So that was pretty sad experience. Yeah, yeah. So w- when did you when did you arrive in Australia? Fifteen years ago, I was twenty three years old. Okay, so you, you did your studies in Australia then, or I got a scholarship. So I went to uni at fifteen in the Maldives, and I finished my undergrad and masters when I was twenty two, and I was already working for the university. So I was like, what else is there for me to do in life? So <laughs> I wanted to study French cooking. So I got a scholarship to come to Australia to study French cooking at Le Cordon Bleu. So I had just had my baby. He was six months old and I came to Australia um, in 2006. Okay. Okay. Is it unusual to go to university at, did you say 15 or 16? 15. Yeah, it is unusual. Okay. All right. It is, yeah. So you progress fast through the school system then it sounds like. I, I think I peaked in my career very early. At 25, yeah. I had done everything uh, most people would do in 20 years. And even had a child and in that period as well. So, yeah. Yeah. I finished uni, had worked for the university, moved countries, got married, had a baby. And all before 30, I had I had done everything. And I was like, what more now? Like, what am I going to do with my life? <laughs> what other boxes can I tick? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, I certainly did not peak in my career in my twenties. So I feel <laughs> like I'm almost the opposite of that. So going back to when you mentioned bootstrapping, I want to ask you about that. Did you intend on bootstrapping? Was that how you wanted to pursue the funding? I mean, was that how you wanted to build the business rather? Or was it that you couldn't get the funding? I think funding is very difficult um, and I wanted to build a business and just doing what needed to be done. And I, I, I don't have, uh, you know, a, a rich dad or a mom who could fund my business. So I was working and using that money to fund the business on the side and, and growing it that way and, and being a single parent and nobody else to rely on is extremely difficult. Um, and with to raise money is also extremely difficult for women mm. due to a number of reasons. One of the biggest challenges is you're not from the boys club mm. and therefore you don't have access to network and network is extremely powerful. Um, so 2018 was really tough. And then later on I went and, and raised some capital after that mm. uh, through, through my network, but still, it is extremely difficult due to systemic biases that exist. And there's a lot of research done in this area around why women get less funding and how the implicit bias uh, prevents women from raising capital. Um, and, and both male and female VCs or investors discriminate towards women because of these implicit biases. But you would think that the female VCs would 
not discriminate mm. towards women, but it, the research shows both men and women equally have the same biases. Um, mm. So it is it is very, very challenging. Yeah, and you're across, I mean, in terms of, you're also sort of in three male-dominated areas there, entrepreneurship, tech, and finance as well. Um, yeah. What is it? So you'd call Cover Hero a fintech, I imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so that particularly is male. I mean, we, we look at entrepreneurship as being, you know, tech entrepreneurship as being male dominated, but, you know, fintech is like another level of it. So um, yeah. what's your experience has been like working kind of in? Uh, I have been doing, doing, you know, all kinds of stuff in, in the world of men. Uh, I think I'm kind of, I don't even notice it because I'm mostly surrounded by by guys and most of my friends are all male as well. Mm. The, the challenge though is even though I have always been around a male-dominated environment and I'm, I'm one of those people that, um, that I will work very hard to get to reach the outcome that I want, regardless of what obstacles I face. And I have always done that. No matter how big the mountain is, if I set my mind to it, that I'm going to climb this mountain, I'm going to climb this mountain. But it has been very challenging because in, in, in the world of insurance, there are various different cultural nuances that make it very difficult for women. So leaving technology aside, the world of financial services, you have a massive glass ceiling, you don't have a lot of female um, executives at C-level positions, so you don't have role models. Uh, you don't have core skill sets done by women, so you, you will have very few actuarial um, uh, scientists or, or people who work in the, the core parts of insurance business. So any kind of product changes or working with innovation it's still the same male-dominated environment. And I have spoken to about over 300 insurance executives around the world, including mm. Europe, Asia, Australia, and North America. And it's disappointing to say I have not spoken to even one female CEO of an insurance company. Mm. If I had met females that are at a senior level, probably I can count with one hand. Um, and mm. that's, that's in, in insurance. Then you look at technology, it is the same. Uh, then you look at uh, people that you want to work with in, in your team. Um, it's still very difficult to find people with the right skill set, someone who's got technology background, finance background. Uh, mm. it's, it's, it's like finding a needle in a haystack. Mm. So how, in terms of your own team, Maybe talk me through what what how have you I guess sought to tackle this in your own team and perhaps aim to do things a little bit differently. And and this is where diversity of thought is is going to be valuable. I think um, the the business that we're building is all about uh, looking at interesting data points, bringing it together, building models. And, and training the models so that it can make decisions. Now, in the world of data science, the models that you build 
have biases integrated into these models. And if you don't have a diverse team building these models, the biases that we have in the world just get accelerated and ingrained into the software. So I think we have a real responsibility at this point in time, especially in the world of finance, to ensure that we do not build those biases into the algorithms. And the way to do that Mm is to have different perspectives and different lenses in the team so that you don't have this group think built into it. So so something that I very openly talk about and advocate for is mathematicians are good at math. They might not understand how society works or a sociological framework, so you can have huge amounts of data. The, the way you can cluster it or the way you make meaning out of that data, different people looking at the same data will give different results. Mm. And therefore, what's more valuable is not in the collection of the data, is how we infer that data. And that requires people with different sets of expertise, different skill sets, different lenses to look at it and triangulate it to ensure that you can see what's not obvious. You can exercise beyond first order thinking. You can do second order thinking. You can do third order thinking. You can you can build this predictive model that is a result of looking at the data but from new perspectives. Mm. I think perspective is, is, is the key thing that happens when you have a diverse team of thinkers. Mm. So what do you if if you're hiring that team to get the different perspectives, is it a matter of just looking for people with different skills or what What would you do? For example, an artist or a psychologist or an accountant. Mm. So these are different skill sets and those skill sets come with different ways of thinking, different ways of solving problems. And that's how you can really create um, amazing products is, is by bringing together all those different uh, lenses, and I often refer to them as lenses. And for someone to form a lens of the world, they have their background, they have their upbringing, they have the language. All of these things plays a role in creating these lenses. So diversity of thought comes with diversity of all of the other aspects as well. And, and those things are extremely valuable um, to have in a team to sh- to see the blind spots that you're not able to see with your own lens. And that is the only way we can find the truth mm. is by shedding light from multiple angles. It's like carrying a torch and going into a dark room. And if everybody, if you're alone with a torch, you can only see one thing at a time. But if you've got multiple people from multiple angles, mm. you can see a lot of different things. Mm. But you don't see the darkness. You only see what's in the light, right? Yeah. So in, yeah. in a world of such complexity, how many torches do we need to see the things that we're not seeing? Mm. And the world is massively polarized right now, which mm-hmm. is really, really sad. And that's because we can't find common ground because everyone's shining the light at each other's face and we're getting blinded rather than pointing fingers at each other because we can't, we can't see the same perspective, go back down to what are the key values that we want 
and why we're behaving in this particular way, the values are we want predictability, we want security, we want love, we want sense of belonging. And everybody wants that. And the way we want to get it is slightly different, but at the core of humanity is all the same. Mm-hmm. But our lenses prevent us from coming together. Yeah. And the way to come together is acknowledge that the lenses are different. The lenses are indoctrinated. But there is the possibility of seeing another perspective if you want to come to the table and have a dialogue. Yeah, yeah. It does. I mean, obviously, you've touched on there in the sense of the world being so polarised. And uh, I, I wanted to get to this question anyway, but to ask about... Yeah, when you've got really wildly different political viewpoints and I think, you know, we still have that in Australia but I don't think it is as extreme in the United States so I think it's a little bit – It's it, this is probably harder to manage in the US but is do you actively look for that as well um, or do you see that that comes from these different things that you bring on anyway? Will that just, will that just happen? Because it, it can be an uncomfortable position uh, when if you sit on one side of the fence in terms of your political views, it can be quite uncomfortable to consider the other side of that fence. I'm a systems thinker. So for me, there is no linear kind of answer. You look at the interconnectedness of the systems and how different viewpoints make sense if you look at it through that one lens and and having the context around it, that deeper understanding of how systems and processes work together will help people realize that the arguments that are being made from various different groups are driven by a value structure. And if that values, if you don't understand the value structure and if you just look at what people are saying or what people are doing, um, then there's no way to find common ground because you can't meet each other. The way to find common ground is the ability to look past the behaviors or the words that are being said and look at the value structures and understand what are people fighting for. Um, If you're fighting against injustice, nobody wants an unfair treatment. We want equity. We want equality. We want accessibility. We want financial security. We want to bridge the, the, the wealth gap. And all of these things have been there for a long time. And I think the, with the power of social media, we are able to influence uh, around the world. Even with, uh, with a TikTok can go viral and, and can have a huge impact. I think, it's given people a voice, the the social media platforms, but also, you know, there's a lot of misinformation um, and Mm. all of those things. And the way to tackle that is exercise independent thinking um, and learn how to make good judgment rather than believing into the emotion that is driven by social media posts and and just believing everything that you say. Mm. And, and I think everyone has an individual responsibility to uh, check in with themselves before posting articles about something that they've seen without without checking the validity and the reliability of that information because mm. what you say can make yeah. a difference or harm someone. So yeah. I think that individual responsibility definitely 
um, has become more important now because yeah. we have access, we have platforms. Yeah, read to be the, able to to use. Read the story. Um, make sure it is factually correct and that it comes from a trusted sources. I think that that's one one a, a, a key issue that um, that I see out there is when it people don't actually read the story because social media goes out there, it gets posted on Facebook, it becomes a headline, it becomes an instant grabbing thing. You can add your own little take on it, but then people aren't reading the story. So you've just got to be careful what goes out there and think about your responsibility of the messages that you're sending other people as well. So I want to finish. This has been a really fascinating conversation. Thank you so much. But um, I want to ask you a question about the future. And this kind of comes from all the – um, amazing things that you have done in your past and particularly this idea of peaking quite early in your career and all the academic stuff that you've done as well. But what do you think going into the future, what what are the key skills, the key traits? Like what is going to be the the things to take on to try and learn now to really be successful, to thrive in the future of work? Yeah. Um. The, the way I see it is there's going to be a lot of automation. Um, and in the world of automation, things that are hard to automate are the skills that's going to be required. So simple linear thinking and, and you know, we, we hope that the computers become super smart. Uh, the number one skill, I would say, as a result of all of those process optimization and, and personalization of services that is going to, to happen is creativity, mm. um, humanities, mm. I think is going to be extremely valuable because the science of people, culture, uh, human beings, these are very, very complex, um, mm. whereas mathematics is, is more linear. And, and, you know, these skills you can learn, you can become an engineer. But I believe that the future of work is going to require thinkers and artists uh, more than engineers. Mm. Um, and that's, that's still going to be really valuable. But I see those two groups working very closely together to solve complex problems in the world. Um, or, or create things that move people's hearts and minds. Um, whereas the the industry of art um, sometimes like is, is not seen as something as valuable. It's just for fun. But the value of art is it evokes an emotion. It inspires you. When you're inspired, you take action. Without inspiration, you can't take action. So they're all very interconnected. Mm, mm. Um, and, and if, you know, kids are, are thinking about what are they going to do, what are they going to study, I, I would say having multiple skills is going to be really, really valuable around the ability to use technology design. Rather than being an expert in one little thing, being able to have a holistic kind of experience around some level of understanding of, of how software works or or design or creating various different tools because there's going to be massive self-employment and to be self-employed, you've got to be able to wear lots of different hats. So Mm. it it would be around thinkers and artists. Yeah. um, Mm. I think is, is, is what is really truly going to make a difference. Mm. 
All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's been excellent. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed uh, this conversation. Thank you for listening to the Women's Agenda podcast. If this episode did raise any issues for you or if you or someone you know needs any assistance, I just wanted to share some key helplines for you. The first one being Beyond Blue on 1300 224 636. The next one is Lifeline on 13 11 14. And another one is Kids Helpline on 1800 551 800. You can also check out all of their websites. Now, a reminder once again that the stories that we do cover on Women's Agenda you can find in some form on our website where you can also go and subscribe to our daily free newsletter that comes out just before lunchtime. The Women's Agenda podcast is produced by Agenda Media and you can also go and check out our new and second podcast called The Leadership Lessons. It's hosted by Kate Mills and it goes into some really deep and interesting territory examining how to lead for the critical decade ahead by speaking with uh, key female leaders. Go and check it out. Thank you for listening.